From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Justin Hems is one of four businessmen consulted by the Federal Treasurer on the JobKeeper program, the single largest spending measure in Australian history. At the same time, Hems is defending a multi-million dollar wages case in the federal court, alleging underpayment of workers. Today, Rick Morton on the man who changed Sydney's nightlife and the case now brought against him. So, Rick, how did Justin Hems make his money? It started with his parents. You know, Justin's mother was a a milliner in Sydney and his father, John, or Mr John, kind of created their own fashion business when they met in Sydney. And that was named after her, his mother, Mary Val. And it kind of revolutionised fashion in Australia. Rick Morton is a senior reporter for the Saturday paper. But his dad's real talent was property. Justin recalls being driven around as a kid, just looking at building after building and being completely bored by it. But in a way, buildings became Justin's talent as well, or I guess more to the point, what you could do with a building. So in 1993, his dad bought a vacant office block on York Street in Sydney. And Hems, you know, young Justin, pitched to his dad this idea for a multi-storey entertainment venue. We came up with this concept for this building. It was a multi-level building on a corner. With a restaurant on one floor and a cocktail lounge, there was a nightclub on another floor, there was a piano bar. Um, And the whole thing became Hotel CBD. I thought this would be a great site to house all these different offerings in the one building. So... We actually conceptualised... And it was meant to be run by a tenant, but that fell through and they backed out and and Justin, you know, who's just a young kid really at this stage, was left in charge of the whole thing. I got a call from my dad and said, we can't even get someone to manage it. Can you come back and run this place for us? And I was in Darwin at the time. I said, I'll come back straight away. So I drove from Darwin to Sydney in two days. And it was an enormous success. So I parked the car in the, in the city there and I ran in and I started managing. And then I fell in love with hospitality. So it was the combination of construction and hospitality. And then there was the establishment. And you've got to remember at this time, Justin is now 24 years of age. And he again, he pitched this idea to his dad. There was this site on George Street in Sydney CBD. It was a $9 million building. He wanted another kind of multi-level pleasure palace and this time there was going to be a hotel as well as bars and restaurants. It was a huge investment at the time and the Hems family had to put their own home on the line basically to get the investment um, secured. But they did it and they did it because, you know, as Justin told the Financial Review, that his dad had unconditional support for him and he actually said, if I told him the sun wasn't going to come up the next morning, he probably would have been like, oh, I bet you're right. But from there, it's really just grown and grown and grown. So, you know, he had family money behind him to begin with, but it wasn't a huge amount compared to what he's actually done with Maryvale, the business now. And and now, when you talk about that company, it's almost impossible to go for a drink in Sydney over a year and not go into one of these venues that is owned by Justin Hems and the family. So they got the Ivy, which really changed a whole segment of how Sydney society went out to drink and party and have fun. No, it's not a Broadway production. This is the future of clubbing. Every Saturday night, Ivy Nightclub will be transformed. It's a wonderful collaboration of, of cabaret and theatre and circus meets 
you know, clubbing. And Justin Hemmers is throwing everything. The Hems Group, of which Justin is now CEO, just keeps adding venues. They've got the Coogee Pavilion, they bought the Newport Arms on Sydney's northern beaches for about, I think it was $50 million from memory. And they bought the Vic on the Park, where I was just a couple of weekends ago, and scores and scores of others. So there's about 70 venues in 20 different buildings, plus they've got a whole suite of residential property. So it's it's a property business as much as anything else, but Justin has always described it as he's, he's in the business of fun and making people feel good. Mm-hmm. And so what is Justin Hems like? Uh, perhaps exactly as you'd imagine someone who's in that business. You know, he's got a Playboy reputation. He likes fast cars. He owns a Bombardier jet. You eat great food. You have a drink um, by the ocean. You go swimming. You, you know, and, and, and this is what I like. This is how I like to live. Uh, when he was younger, he flipped uh, and sunk his speedboat, a very expensive speedboat, I should add, often surrounded by beautiful women, almost always in a loose, open-neck linen shirt. I think it's... Um it's a country that is so full of opportunity and so ripe with opportunity that if you have the gusto to go for it, um, chances are you're going to um, succeed. He's got a reputation for being absolutely fastidious with detail, not only his own in terms of the way he dresses, but the business itself. They talk about the fact that he <laughs> will check receipts for a $50 business expense. And when the AFR, actually, the Financial Review, photographed him for that profile, you know, about the fact that his wealth had cracked the $1 billion mark. He just went and grabbed a lobster out of the kitchen um, for the photo shoot, and as soon as the photo shoot was over, he put the lobster back. He didn't return the lobster to freedom, he just put it back in the kitchen so it wouldn't go to waste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, Rick, can you tell me why you started looking into Justin Hems? Well, it actually started with the coronavirus pandemic, um, ironically, because I was looking at the suite of influences around the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, particularly the ones involved in the creation of the landmark JobKeeper Wage Subsidy Program. So Josh Frydenberg actually called Justin Hems and three others to kind of iron out the details of this government spending program. It's the biggest one ever, and it was meant to save the Australian economy during the coronavirus lockdown. And I was especially interested because I knew at the same time as that call, Hems was fighting an enormous underpayment case in the federal court. We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy. Yeah, yeah, if, that's, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rick, can you tell me more about this phone call between Justin Hems and the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg that happened while the JobKeeper package was being formulated? Yeah, right. So Justin Hems is um, a close friend of the Federal Treasurer. And so Hems has always been there. He was at his first speech uh, as an MP in Parliament. He was at his first budget speech as a Treasurer uh, last year, shortly before the federal election. So, you know, Frydenberg, he knows Justin quite well. And there's this dinner 
so on the night of the 26th of March, uh, Josh Frydenberg goes to Scott Morrison's parliamentary office. He's there with the Finance Minister Matthias Cormann and both the Treasury Secretary and Deputy Secretary uh, Stephen Kennedy and Jenny Wilkinson were beamed in via video link. And they're kind of thrashing about going, what are we going to do uh, for people who are losing their jobs? And for weeks, you know, this team had been pressured um, by many different parts of society to adopt um, a wage subsidy very similar to one being used in Britain and New Zealand. We need the wage subsidy implemented and we need it implemented urgently. Two weeks ago when we were arguing this and unions have been arguing it and business has been arguing it, Scott Morrison as Prime Minister... But Scott Morrison was adamant that that was not going to be the case, mostly because he'd resisted it in the first place quite publicly. But they needed something. And what they realised they needed was that they needed a program that could be delivered using the existing government infrastructure, i.e. Centrelink, um, or Services Australia. And crucially, um, the thing that really convinced them was that they needed a program that preserved the relationship between employers and their staff. The employers didn't want their staff going into the Centrelink queue. They wanted to be paid directly so that they could keep the... Um, their staff on their books. So this dinner happens. Not long after that dinner, on the night of the the 26th of March, Josh Freinberg made four separate phone calls to Justin Hems, uh, to the retail billionaire Solomon Liu, and to the CEOs of JB Hi-Fi and West Farmers, where he kind of sussed out what they thought about this now embryonic JobKeeper package. And those phone calls, each of them individually, became quite uh, significant, um, I think, to Josh Freinberg's thinking about what needed to be done. Just, Josh, just one point. I mean, they always say government doesn't consult and you don't listen to anybody, you don't talk to people. Just explain to our our viewers what happened that night when you put the package together because you... Josh Frydenberg confirmed this, you know, on April 1 in an interview with 2GB's Alan Jones. Josh Frydenberg detailed his call to Hens about the JobKeeper. Well, that's true, Alan. Um, When we were working on the JobKeeper package, uh, we wanted to talk to the business leaders uh, who tragically uh, were closing their doors and laying off their staff. Uh, And so I did speak to to a number of them, Justin Hems, uh, Solly Liu. uh, Frydenberg told Alan Jones that the men were really emotional about having to close their doors um, as a result of the pandemic. So that really stuck in Frydenberg's head. Between them, they employ around 150,000 Australians. And through no fault of them, no fault of their staff, uh, but as a result of this global pandemic, uh, they had to close their doors and... Hems, I should point out, has um, also been a key voice on the Business Advisory Committee convened by the New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, um, which has you know, assumed in- increased influence after the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and, you know, there have been uh, multiple kind of hookups and discussions just kind of sorting through the crisis. And Justin Hems is kind of influential now in these two spheres of coalition governments. Right. So Hems is offering advice to the government formally at the state level and informally at the federal level. You also mentioned that there's this court case over wages. Can you tell me more about that? It's it's a class action um, against Hems's pub empire. Explosive legal action will be brought against hospitality king Justin Hemmers this week, following allegations by staff that they... Essentially, it's alleged that almost $100 million in back pay um, and penalties and entitlements is owed to staff, uh, both current and former, for lost penalty rates and other entitlements that were kind of not included in this workplace agreement, um, which is a, a kind of a leftover from the Howard era 
work choices regime. Sydney's Bar Zar in for another court row. A class action announced claiming Merivale shortchanged more than 8,000 staff over six years. In the defence that Hens's lawyers have filed, they say that they believe the agreements they were working under were legal. Um, and indeed that the business would actually not have made many of the decisions that it ended up making, like expanding aggressively and, and going into debt, um, if they thought that these agreements were not legal. So that's the key to their defence, right? Now, Maryvale first began drafting this collective employee agreement around August 2007 in the dying months of the Howard government. The deal was voted on, agreed and inked in December of that year, but under the work choices light, as it became known, this uh, employee agreement was now subject to a fairness test from what was then the Workplace Authority. So from here begins quite a complex back and forth. And the argument now is that the agreement that was left in place allowed for a decade of underpayment, really quite substantial underpayment. And so while much of the lawsuit targets the payment of flat rates to staff, which is meant to cover the fact that they don't get penalties, about $12 million to $18 million of the claim is, is regarding salaried employees who were paid for about 38 hours a week, but were, according to Adero Law, who's running the class action, rostered and actually did work up to 55 hours each week. Now, Hems's lawyers say that this was actually averaged out across um, the 52 weeks of the year and that this was fair and they agreed to these conditions when they signed on to the Maryvale Agreement. Um, and it goes on like this, almost ad infinitum. So do we know when this will be resolved, what the timeline is on this case? So right now we're, we're still in the document discovery phase. Um, so Maryvale has filed their defence um, and there's been a, just uh, in the last week actually, there's been a couple of more documents requested from uh, the class action uh, lawyers, Adero. So this will at this stage go to trial at some point. Um, we just don't have a date for that yet. So we're still doing the, the backroom stuff. But, you know, uh, I guess... At the moment, we're watching and waiting to see what the judge does. Mm -hmm. And did you talk to the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, about any of this? Were you able to ask whether it was appropriate to seek counsel on wages policy from someone who's defending a wages case in the federal court? Look, I tried. <laughs> um, he didn't get back to me, obviously, um, and neither did Justin Hems um, through Maryvale. Um, but, you know, the, the court documents do speak for themselves. And I, and I, I went to Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Treasurer, as well, and he said, you know, they've never discussed the legal proceedings and, you know, he was saying that it's important to get a wide range of views when you're leading the state, which is not inaccurate. You've got to talk to everyone, I guess. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ruby. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has said that sexual harassment allegations against former High Court Judge Dyson Hayden were very disturbing, very concerning and incredibly serious. An independent investigation commissioned by the High Court found Hayden harassed six former court staff, some of whom have since left the law. Former Labor leader Bill Shorten has called for Dyson Hayden to be stripped of his Australian honours, the Law Council of Australia President Pauline Wright said the findings were indicative of broader cultural problems within the profession and has called for change. 
Dyson Hayden categorically denied the allegations. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.